Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. We open today with President Trump's surprising dismissal of FBI Director James Comey. Now, initial reports from administration officials were that the president went along with the move instigated by Attorney General Jeff Sessions and particularly Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, who was confirmed only a few weeks ago. Now, officials also stated that the dismissal had nothing to do with the ongoing FBI investigation of ties between the Trump campaign and Russia, an investigation that some say had been gaining steam in recent weeks, with Director Comey reportedly asking for more resources, though this is disputed, and receiving daily instead of weekly briefings on the progress of the investigation. Now, the the ostensible reason for firing Comey was his handling of the Hillary Clinton email server investigation. But later in the week, in an interview with NBC, President Trump himself may have contradicted the administration's story by saying that he was going to fire Comey regardless of the Department of Justice's recommendation and that he said to himself, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story, suggesting that the investigation may have played a role in the decision. After dismissing Comey, Trump then took to Twitter to issue what some call a threat against the former FBI director, tweeting, James Comey better hope there are no tapes of our conversation before he starts leaking to the press. So, Jay, what do you make of all this craziness this week? Well, it's just another another fun week in uh, in Trump's Washington. Um, You know, I'd say a a couple of things. First, on the merits I think there is a a good case uh, that Comey should should be let go should have been let go, uh, and I think it's probably beneficial uh, in the long run that he was. Um, that said, the way Trump handled it, which is the usual kind of ham-handed way that, that Trump handles a lot of things, uh, was terrible, uh, was botched, and it, again, it's sort of akin to the um, uh, the travel ban uh, rollout, uh, where where. Again, if you're going to do this, there's a better way to, to do this. I mean, I, I would first of all, on the merits, I'd say people really should look at the uh, the Rosenstein memo um, because it it goes into detail saying, hey, here's here's what this guy did wrong and what he he's been doing and shouldn't be doing. Uh, and I think that's that's appropriate. Uh, those were appropriate reasons. Um, the problem is then Trump sort of completely screwed that all up by saying, well, I'm going to fire. I was going to fire him anyway, and uh, doing it in the way he did. Uh, I mean, the only thing that that could have been sort of more uh, goofy over the top would have been doing it, you know, in the style of the the Apprentice, which would have been really fun television, though. Also, with the, you know, you, you call the cabinet in the boardroom, and you know yeah. somebody's got to go this week, and uh, um, uh, you know, and it's it's uh, who should who should leave. It would have been fun, but um, no, I I don't think that um, it's a uh, cover up type thing. But what it does, it adds fuel to that fire. Uh, I don't think it's going to change anything regarding investigations going forward or not going forward. Uh, most of those investigations are outside of the FBI. They're in Congress. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, to me, it's it's one of these, it's another unforced error on Trump where, uh, he, he, you know, again, he had a week of let's, he can move forward with uh, health care, with tax policy. 
uh, you know, take a bit of a victory lap. And really what he what he should have been doing this week, uh, instead of dealing with questions about uh, Comey and the Russians and so forth, uh, should have been selling the uh, the health care uh, plan in the Senate and uh, helping uh, a representative sell that at home. And and it, to me, it's one of those missed opportunities because uh, he's he's sort of chasing down this. He's getting into a fight that he didn't need to get into. At least he didn't need to get into it right now. Yeah, and we've we've said it, you know a number of times before. Trump is. Uh, he might not be his own worst enemy. He has plenty of pretty bad enemies, but uh, certainly he's a big enemy to himself. You know, this lack of coordination, lack of planning, lack of talking points, you know, the whole, it, it's pretty, pretty much seemed like a spur of the moment. You know, the, the, what we hear from so many sources is, is Trump gets all upset about something he sees on TV, makes an impulsive decision, isn't interested in planning or coordinating anything. And, and, and you know, to me, there are sort of two possibilities here. Number one, the FBI was, in fact, getting too close to something or that President Trump just simply has terrifically poor impulse control. I guess it could be both, you know, Uh, but there's a there's a saying that uh, wrongly, uh, from what I understand, attributed to Napoleon, uh, never ascribed to malice that which can be adequately explained by ignorance or in this case, you know, really bad impulse control. And so I, I, I certainly think that there could be something with the whole Russia thing, and maybe it was designed to kind of stop that investigation. But to me, that, you know, kind of using that sort of Occam's razor sort of uh, approach to it, that the simplest explanation is just that Trump is a super impulsive guy who just acts, boom, like that. And and that's kind of what's what's going on there, you know, and pretty. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think that makes makes a lot more sense, because, it, again, if his if his goal was to uh, stop end the investigation, Exactly. Uh, this certainly wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, it he, just makes it worse. Uh, he didn't fire the entire FBI. Uh, and his uh, uh, yeah. Comey successor right now is very much a, a he's been described as a Comey loyalist. Um, you know, if, if anything, it, it might make some people uh, dig a little deeper. Uh, so I, I don't I don't. Again, if that was the plan, it was it was a terribly poorly executed. But I think I think this is more what, what you get, though. And we talked about this way back when when Trump was initially running. This idea of, oh, we're going to run government like a business and we need a business leader in there to 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 do things and to shake things up. Uh, there are things you can do in your own business that that just don't work in in government, in, yeah. in politics. And well, one of the things you can do in your own company is if somebody upsets you, angers you, uh, you can just go and fire them. Uh, it's it's different uh, in, in this other other world. And uh it, uh, Trump seems to, to not have realized that yet. Yeah, you know, I, I almost feel sorry for, for Trump's communications people and, and because pretty clearly they're they're tasked with an almost impossible job here. Sure. Uh, and and they're basically have to go out there and, and lie for the president. It puts them in impossible positions. And, you know, like the, like the idea that uh, the FBI people really just were, were demoralized and hated Director Comey when, you know, there are plenty of people in the FBI said it's totally not the case. And especially if you're somebody who was pushing back hard against leaks, and we know that leaks drive President Trump, they drive any president crazy, right. but especially this guy. This is exactly the wrong thing to do. You can expect the leaks now to come hard and fast. And then when you then when you make this threat, what a stupid thing. You know, 
Back in 1974, Congress passed something called the Presidential Recordings and Materials Preservation Act. And what that did was it made all tapes that any president makes, including if you tape stuff on your cell phone, that would count as a as a presidential record that has to right. be uh, that has to be preserved. And it also can be subpoenaed. It's illegal to destroy it in, or alter it in any way. And so right there, President Trump opened himself up to this. I mean, it's just, it's the only, the only, just the only, the only reasoning I can think about is that he's just acting without thinking, you know, it's just really, really dumb, basically. Yeah. That's, that's my sense. There was, there was a piece, uh, and I'm trying to think where it was. It might have been the Atlantic, but the the the, the message was look, look, we, we need to stop trying to to overanalyze Trump or analyze him at all, and and just accept it. He really is just what he what he appears to be. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's you know more of that's coming uh, coming to a head. And and this is another uh, uh, another uh, situation where he got out in front of the story. Uh, without having things set up, and then again, I'm not I'm not saying that Comey shouldn't have been fired because I, I think that was appropriate, uh, but this was not the way to do it, and this was was a poor rollout, um, and uh, it, you know it could have it could have been done in a a much uh, more harmonious uh, way for Trump, for Comey, for everyone. Yeah, and you know, and the President Trump has said that he hopes to name a to nominate a successor very soon, and of course, those hearings are going to be very. Very interesting, and you know, one concern that that some people, especially- although one one name that has been floated for for that position was uh, Merrick Garland. Yeah, that's not going to happen. That was that was <laughs> floated as kind of a ridiculous sort of. Well, if we can get this Democrat off of the off of the D.C. Circuit and have President Trump appoint a Republican, <laughs> that was just one of those ridiculous things. D.C. Circuit's happen. a much better job. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. But you know, one thing I'd point out though is that there's a concern among some on the left, especially that even though there are these House and Senate investigation goings, goings, going on, uh, at least the, the Senate investigations are real, one the House one I don't know so much about, but you know they are relying to a certain extent on the FBI for some of their information and so forth. And so the FBI really is critical to all these investigations. Um, another thing I wanted to point out is that while the media and the left certainly has gone nuts about this, Trump's job approval among Republicans is still really, really great. I mean, the high 70s, low 80s, and that's not going to change because they're not, you know, everyone's in their little silos and they're exposed to the kind of media cheerleading, of, you know, on Fox and so forth. And they don't see it as a problem. You know, looking at it from a Trump supporter point of view, which I tried to do is, well, okay, you know, sure, President Trump supported Comey during the election, his comment about how it took guts to do what he did with the Hillary Clinton email thing. But, you know, then you could say, well, once he became president, he learned more about the situation, found out that Comey was a showboat and uh, he was pushing this fake Russia story for his own, you know, self-aggrandizement. And then he makes this testimony where he says he's mildly nauseous at the thought that his actions might have turned the election to Trump. And so, you know, Comey's not a team player. Uh, you can say that maybe he seems like he's actively out to get the president. And so he had a go. And the fact that President Trump did this now shows that he doesn't care about 
appearances, political correctness. He's going to do the right thing regardless. And so, you know, and despite Comey's support within the bureau and, and so forth, that Trump just said, this is the right thing to do. We need to do it now. Now, that's not the narrative I believe, but I certainly could see that as a narrative a lot of Trump supporters would, would actively embrace. Well, I, you know, I think it's, uh, and and again, I wouldn't call myself a Trump supporter, uh, but no, I think there's there's a lot of sense to that. And if if anything, it's one of those, you know, which Donald Trump are you talking about? Uh, was he acting more responsibly uh, back on the campaign trail when he was praising Comey for uh, uh, criticizing Hillary Clinton? Uh, or is is he being acting more appropriate now where he's uh, getting rid of him for the, the showboating and, and so forth? Um, so I you know, again, my sense is, you know, maybe I, I think he did the right thing uh, anyway. And, and this goes back to Comey's issues with uh, appointing a special prosecutor, uh, Fitzgerald, in the um, um, uh, uh, Scooter Libby matter. Uh, and, and, you know, again, it's not just it's not just uh, this, but um, no, I, I don't I don't see it as uh, I understand how Trump supporters could do it. But keep in mind, Trump supporters are exposed to the rest of the media. Um, well, uh, I think more so. I think more. No, I think more so than than uh, liberals are exposed to conservative media. Uh, I think uh, conservatives are exposed to more of the okay. the liberal culture. But uh, you know, regardless, I think there's there's a good argument to be seen, and I, and I really think this is going to play out. And you know, we will talk about this throughout the summer. We would all all put a marker down now. Uh, that I think there is uh, nothing to the Russia story. Uh, there's everything that's been supposedly a bombshell revelation that's going to be uh, come out uh, has has just sort of fizzled. I don't know. The so Mike I, Flynn thing is still pretty. You know, there seems to be an awful lot there. Wouldn't you the say? where the Flynn the Flynn part of the story seems seems to be an awful well, lot. The, there. All right. The, so the Flynn part of the story is he was he accepted money and, and he didn't report it, uh, and that's problematic. And he accepted. Uh, or he had a phone call uh, and he didn't report that. Um, that that is problematic. But again, there, you know, I haven't seen the piece tying Flynn uh, or anything that Flynn did to to the president seeking to uh, influence the election. Yeah. Well, you know, it. I mean, uh, and 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 the the case to make, at least from from the left, and and the case that I sort of think there's something too is is there are a lot of little things that add up. You know, you have the Flynn thing, you have the Carter Page thing, you have you have you know well, a the, number. The, but the Carter Page thing turned out. I mean, a situation where, uh, look, Trump never met with with Carter Page, and and the Russians really didn't have much to say about Page. No, no, no. And, and, uh, I, I to agree. The extent he was involved or approached, he cooperated with the FBI and helped catch Russian spies a couple of years ago. Sure, so it, I. Again, I, I just don't see... But I think you're missing my point here, maybe. Maybe I'm not articulating it well enough. I'm not saying that any one of these individual things is huge, but you start adding these things together, and then you add in the fact that the president didn't release his tax returns, and there's a lot of speculation. In fact, a lot of things that Trump people have said in the past about how much money they've gotten in financing from the Russians and so forth, sure. and and you you add up that that all of those things, and it starts to feel like something. And when you have an administration that is so unwilling to be transparent and so defensive about these things, it understandably makes people wonder. And so maybe there is nothing to this, maybe nothing will come of it, but I'm not as, uh, I'm not as sure about that as you are, but you're right. We, we will find out. And, you know, before we move on from this story, uh, I, I mentioned this on Facebook a few days ago on our page. I'm actually starting to think that 
the election of Donald Trump might have might have been a good thing for the United States. And, and, and when I said that, there were a couple of people sort of freaked out on the Facebook page. And, and I said, I try to make my case. I, I express mild surprise, but yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, here's, here's the thing. I, I started to think about an alternate universe where Hillary Clinton was president. Okay. Now to me, that would, and I think to a lot of, of liberals, that would be a definite downgrade from the Obama presidency. I, I have a lot more faith in, 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 in the integrity and the competence and, and the trustworthiness of, of uh, President Obama than I do in Hillary Clinton for a lot of reasons that stretch back decades, right? And I could see what the result of a Clinton presidency would be. It would be, number one, more Democratic losses in the 2018 midterms then facing a 2020 general election with big Republican majorities in the House and the Senate that would get even bigger, possibly filibuster-proof, and then you get a truly conservative person like, I don't know, Ted Cruz, who's not only much more conservative than I'd like, but almost certainly going to be a lot more competent than someone like a Donald Trump. And that's a truly scary scenario for me, and and I see this kind of going the other way, is that the, the Trump you know election kind of shook Democrats out of their malaise, and I start to see a 2018 and a 2020 that look an awful lot better. And so when I kind of play these things out, and granted, you know that that's years into the future, I almost wonder, well, maybe this longer term again was a good thing for the Democratic Party and and for the country. And that's not to say that I think that Donald Trump isn't well, essentially a reprehensible human being, but, but, you know, kind of looking longer term, maybe trying to find that silver lining sort of that's, that's how I'm thinking about it now. I see. I see. Well, you're kind of, you're kind of like the coach going in at, at halftime and you're down 27, nothing. And you're saying, we, we got them right where we want them now. Well, um, uh, you know, I, I understand <laughs> it, but, but the fact of the matter is it, it's, it's heartening to me that Donald Trump and his administration are so incredibly incompetent. Because, you know, I think I think if we could just hang on Democrats until 20 after the 2018 elections, then I, I think there's a really good chance we'll have a House majority and nothing legislatively will be done. And so so I, I see where you're going with the analogy, but I don't think it's no, no. quite fitting. No, here's, so. here's why I would say I would say where it benefits Democrats is at this point uh, when you have Republican control of both houses of Congress and the presidency. Uh, Republicans are on the hook for yeah, everything, no exactly. matter what. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably the best argument that you have. And I think that's sort of sort of what you're saying in in, in part. Um, yeah. Is that yeah? There's there's no more there's no more dodging. It's it's easy and fun uh, to be in the minority and just kind of be in the the back uh, backbenchers and and you know bomb throwers and so forth. Yeah. Uh, because you you don't really have the responsibility of governing. Uh, because governing is a lot tougher than uh, than just being in the minority. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I guess I would also say before we move on that the only thing, of course, that is going to be really hard to recover from are, are the uh, judicial appointments, you know, and, and uh, there's a good chance that President Trump might have one more, uh, two more, who knows, uh, appointments to the, to the Supreme Court. And of course, the lower, you know, federal courts, also he's going to have a, a lot of appointments there. And that's the kind of thing where that resonates over, you know, over decades. And so that's a lot harder to, to recover from. And I don't want to minimize what I think the damage that some of those appointments will do. But if you if you if you retake Congress, then uh, you you won't so much need the judiciary. Well, at least that's well, my little, that's a little my little snarky kind of. Well, okay, okay. Um, 
You know, th there was actually some non-Comey-related news this week, though it's understandable, I think, if people missed it. Um, you know, one story that caught my attention was Attorney General Jeff Sessions withdrawing the 2013 directive from Obama Attorney General Eric Holder that allowed a, a number of low-level, nonviolent drug offenders to avoid what a lot of people see as overly punitive and ineffective mandatory minimum sentences, you know, a lot of which, of course, were put in place during the 1980s and early 1990s that wore on drugs. Now, when I read this, my immediate thought was, this is exactly what I expect from Jeff Sessions. I mean, he was a U.S. attorney during the 1980s and into the early 90s, which it seems to me that would be where many of his ideas about sentencing were, were developed. And and that's understandable, but we're living in a very different world, and there's growing bipartisan uh, consensus that the sentencing policies of that era, number one, were expensive, number two, they were ineffective, and that maybe they were an overreaction, particularly to that crack cocaine epidemic. But, but it seems to me that just like when it comes to marijuana legalization, Sessions has shown no interest in revisiting opinions he's formed well over a generation ago, despite what new evidence there is or how the situation or how the world may have changed in those intervening decades. So, Jay, what did you think about this? Well, first, let's, uh, let's explain exactly what, what he did. Sure. Because uh, he didn't necessarily, it's not as if the attorney general can simply impose greater sentences right, or, right. or anything like that. What he did, and the way this works is there, there are a series of sent, what are called sentencing guidelines uh, that were put in place uh, by Congress, again, back in the early 90s, uh, predominantly to, to address uh, things like, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic. Um, and also concerns that there were, there were people who were being let off with, with too lenient sentences. Uh, so Congress essentially cracked down on the judiciary and said, "Here's here's the deal for uh, crimes, you know, X, Y, and Z. Uh, there, the, here are the guidelines. If you take this into account, you take this into account, and here's this range. And if there's this, you know, contributing factor, then it adds this many years and so forth. Um, it's a really it's a really long book, the sentencing guidelines. Um, but uh, this is this is the way. It, and judges resisted this in a lot of ways because it it took away their discretion." to deal with, um, uh, you know, crimes that perhaps shouldn't have been brought or where the, the punishment doesn't really fit what, what this person, uh, what, what the defendant did. Uh, I, I, uh, clerked in, um, for the federal, uh, circuit courts in, uh, in, uh, 1999, 2000. Um, and this was something we struggled with a great deal, uh, whereas, uh, you know, the, the appeals court, uh, really had a lot of sympathy for some of these defendants who, uh, who were were being sentenced to to, to terms that that seemed inordinate uh, inordinately long to what they had done, uh, but you know if you looked at based on what the guidelines said, what the actual conduct was, uh, what was proved, and what the judge did, you sort of had no choice but to but to affirm. Um, so I mean, moving forward, what happened in uh, ninety uh, uh, the Eric Holder, Holder memo uh, was that Holder instructed prosecutors to say, look. You don't have to ch to to charge uh, a defendant with the highest possible uh, crime and the highest penalty would, that would carry a mandatory minimum. Um, and and again, you know, prosecutors have a wide variety of options. Typically, when someone's arrested, uh, it's not just a hey, this guy committed this crime or is charged with this crime. There there may be four or five or seven or ten different things that 
that this person could be charged with. Uh, and there's some discretion as to the, the charging. Uh, what Holder did was say, look, if you have the choice, uh, you can charge them with something that is uh, doesn't carry a mandatory minimum. Uh, and what uh, uh, Sessions is saying is uh, it is now the official policy of the Justice Department to prove to uh, charge for the the highest provable uh, offense. Right. Right. And I believe part of that revolved around uh, uh, not uh, instructing prosecutors to not necessarily specify the amount of drugs that that were involved because certain amounts uh, sort of automatically require certain charges and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I, I think we should also point out, I've, I've been nothing but harsh on Jeff Sessions, and I think deservedly so, but I should point out that the new policy does allow for exceptions based on what, what's called, what, what uh, Attorney General called good judgment, subject to approval by either supervisors in the U.S. Attorney's offices or Justice Department headquarters. Now, a lot's going to depend on how that process plays out and what sort of exceptions are, in fact, allowed, I think. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think what, I mean, I think the, the better way to express what, what Sessions has has done with this change is it, it's, it's probably less a change in policy uh, and more just a change in tone. Uh, you know, the, it's sort of the, the presumption before in the Holder era, era was sort of, we will charge them <clears throat> with the lowest uh, crime we can we can support, right. uh, absent other information. And the session sort of just for sort of flipped that presumption, saying we'll charge with the highest provable crime, absent uh, other information. So well, I, I mean, I understand it because you know I, I think there are there are a lot of people who are being charged uh, and put away. Uh, for sentences that are are inordinately long uh, compared to, to what they've they've actually done, um, but I don't I don't want to oversell this as as sort of Jeff Sessions right. just is just locking everyone up. Well, you know, um, I, I, but I think you would agree, right, that a lot of people, even on the right, are saying, you know, it, it, it's a, this is a fiscal issue as well. Oh as, yeah, I'm I'm saying it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> right, just wanted yeah. to be clear about that because I mean, this is one of the few issues that, in fact, when when President Trump was was first elected, one of the issues that some people thought, well, maybe Republicans and Democrats could work together on sentencing reform, you know, and I don't I don't really see that happening. Certainly, Jeff Sessions wouldn't be on board uh, with, with that sort of thing. Now, I also want to point out that you know, uh, in 2016, which is the last number, the last year, so we have good we have good figures for the total federal prisoner population was around 192,000, and that's down from 219,000 when Attorney General Holder released that mandatory minimum related memo. Um, now, that's out of to give people a sense of kind of the scope. That's out of a total prison population in the U.S. of around 1.53 million. In other words, federal prisoners make up around 12.5% of all prisoners. Most of them are not, you know, uh, in, in federal custody, but but uh, but state level and so forth. You know, the the other um, uh, thing I wanted to, to mention about this, though, and it, it just to just to kind of raise the other side, in uh, sort of Holder's defense is. The, the policy that uh, the idea is that you would charge someone with the highest provable crime uh, also goes to being able to get uh, witnesses to flip on higher ops. Uh, and that is a tool that prosecutors use. And that's one that that uh, was cited uh, for the policy change. Uh, and there's there's a, a evidence to show that witness cooperation has decreased 
uh, after the, the Holder memo, albeit albeit slightly. Uh, the numbers I'm getting from, were from the Wall Street Journal that showed a drop of about 3% when they look at witnesses who are substantially cooperating and uh, sort of rolling over on, on higher ups. So, I mean, I think there's, there's an argument for you come in with the highest penalty uh, possible uh, and see if you can get someone to uh, essentially rat out their, uh, you know, the, the higher ups. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's, that's necessarily where, where I come down on the argument, but I, I, I think that's a, that's a non-frivolous argument to make, yeah. uh, is, is sometimes it's helpful to have that, that, uh, bigger hammer. Well, that's a fair point. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I, well, I think, and, and both, you know, one final thing, at least for me before, before we move on is one of the problems with this, I think with how stories like this is, uh, this are covered is you tend to get uh, a bunch of stories about kind of the initial announcement without necessarily the context about the, like the exceptions and that sort of thing, kind of right. digging into what the, what the former policy did. And what we're probably not going to see much of it all is any follow-up as to how this policy was actually implemented and what sort of, you know, what sort of changes it resulted in. Now we're going to try to follow, to follow up on this and keep an eye on this, but it's almost certainly not the kind of thing that you're going to see much of in, you know, the Washington Post, Politico, that sort of thing, because it's just not the sort of, you know, thing that that is that is uh, exciting and new and sexy that that those sort of outlets cover, unfortunately. Right. Well, it would also be extremely research heavy. Yeah. Uh, and that what you know, in order to determine what the difference is under the new policy versus the old policy, you'd have to line up a whole bunch of, of people who arrested and see what they did and then see what they were charged with and compare and to have a, you know, a meaningful sample uh, would, would, would be a whole lot of work. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes you can, you can see what, uh, this would be less hard. You can, you can go and see what people were initially charged to and then what they pled to, for example, uh, or what they were eventually convicted of. Um, but still it's, it's one of those stories that, uh, if you're a, a, if you're a reporter, I can see why you'd want to shy away from it because it's it would be a whole lot of work and yeah. uh, not not a lot of splash. No, exactly, exactly right. So, but we will try to keep an eye on it and uh, give you some updates uh, as uh, as uh, events and and uh, data allow us to. So, yeah. All right. Uh, you know, when you can't get things through Congress and you're the president, what do you do? Well, you sign executive orders. Yeah, hand on a phone. Uh, exactly. You know. And, President Trump has been very active on this front. One of his latest sets up a commission to study voter fraud and the integrity of the U.S. election system with a charge to report back to the president on recommendations on eliminating vulnerabilities in the system. Now, the commission will be chaired by Vice President Mike Pence, but it's expected that the real work of the panel will be done by Vice Chair Chris Kobach, the Republican Secretary of State in Kansas, who's been a longtime advocate of some of the strictest voter ID laws in the country. Uh, now, the plan is for the panel to consist of around a dozen or so members and include people from both parties. The conservatives generally approved of the move, while liberals, like me, see it as part of a long-standing Republican effort to suppress turnout of largely Democratic voters by making wildly inflated claims about vote fraud, which almost all rigorous analysis is found to be nearly non-existent. Now, Jay, we've talked about this before, but what do you think just in general about this, this panel? Oh, it, it's fine. I mean, let's, why, I mean, why, why wouldn't you, uh, uh, if there are, are, are vulnerabilities in the system, uh, why not find out what they are and see if they can be uh, made less vulnerable? Um, you know, I, I think I think this probably doesn't doesn't go a, a whole 
doesn't really do a whole lot because again, consider that um, voting rights, uh, voting laws are all made and enforced at the state level. Uh, I, I, sh I should I should back that up. There are there are uh, certain federal uh, voting rights act type things uh, that are uh, obviously federally administered, but in terms of, of voter ID, in terms of uh, who gets to vote when and, and how often and how open, how late the polls stay open, that's typically a matter of uh, a combination of state legislation and the state secretary of state right? Uh, who, who regulates that. So, you know, I think you can have this commission who might come up with a bunch of, of recommendations and they would say, we recommend this, this, and this, and various states will implement them. Uh, a lot of states won't, and that's going to turn probably on the politics of those uh, those individual states. Uh, I would also say probably the the states that were, would would make changes are the ones that probably already have, you know. And so I, I don't think there's going to be a whole lot uh, new that comes out of this. And again, the, of course, the next step is it's you know the, somebody sues and and you got to go to court over it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's Trump keeping a campaign promise um, to look into this. Uh, and and look, I think integrity of elections is uh, is important. Um, the Ohio Secretary of State, uh, John Husted, released a report a couple months back uh, looking at situations where they have, again, this is documented, uh, absolute uh, uh, ironclad, you know, prosecuted uh, uh, convictions. Uh, some of them convictions. I shouldn't say they're all, all convicted, but some of them were. Uh, where you have people who were not registered to vote, who were illegal uh, immigrants uh, or other folks who were somehow dis disqualified for voting. Uh, who voted in uh, in the state of Ohio. Now, the number that he comes out on his report was there are about 83, I think, is the number that sticks out, which is which is a little short than the, the you know, 3 million or something that, that Trump said uh, voted illegally. But uh, look, this is this is not a, a it, it does happen. Even if you say it's 83 uh, votes out of a state where uh, I don't know, probably, you know, 8 million votes were cast, probably not that many well, I'd have well, to, to look well, up, but uh, still that's, that's 83 yeah. uh, people. And to some extent if it's, it canceled out 83 other votes. Well, so, well, well, let me, let me throw some other numbers at you. Uh, there was a, a study done by a Loyola law school professor who looked at uh, voter impersonation, vote fraud, which is the type that most of these voter ID laws are aimed to kind of, you know, work on to, to, right. to minimize. Right. And what he looked at all elections, sorry, federal elections between 2000 and 2014, uh, that roughly over that period, uh, slightly over 800 million ballots were cast. Um, and uh, he found uh, 35 total credible accusations of, of uh, in-person vote fraud. Now, if you look at, so that's a tiny, 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 tiny percentage. Now, if you add in all types of vote fraud, uh, I believe it was the Electoral Integrity Project, or, or I forget the name of it, but uh, looked at uh, 2000 through 2012. They found a total of 2,068 of all types of vote fraud through that period. This is a time where over 620 million votes were cast in national general elections. That's 0.000003%, I believe, of, of alleged cases of fraud for every vote cast. So it does happen. It is extraordinarily rare. Um, and, uh, but, and, you know, I think you need to consider there's, there's a, there's a cost benefit analysis here. And certainly in any election where there's any large number of people, there's going to be a tiny, tiny amount of fraud. 
But the concern on the left is that voter suppression issue, which is, uh, you know, which is a much greater concern. Look, for instance, the uh, uh, the Brennan Center. And I, I know probably how you feel about the Brennan Center, but <laughs> they found that uh, uh, something like 25 percent of black voting age citizens didn't have a government issued photo ID compared with 8 percent of white voting age citizens. And so, you know, and, and there are, in fact, have been Republicans who have who've been involved in this process, flat out said, well, this is, you know, a, a good thing for us to do to kind of help our voters and to kind of make it harder for the other parties, uh, likely voters. But that said, and we've had this discussion a lot of times, Jay, but I actually think that uh, a panel or commission might actually be a good thing if it's truly bipartisan and they make recommendations based on the ev- evidence taking into consideration not just like the light, not just a likely level of fraud, but also the effect that really strict voter ID laws have on suppressing the vote. I would welcome something well, how, like how that. How do you measure that, though? I guess that's that's my thing is is there's there's a measurement and a metric you can look at. If you have a voter ID law uh, and you can say, OK, we we caught X many people uh, who violated this. I'm not sure how how do you how do you show these people were. Sure. discouraged from voting or, or, and that's, or yeah, that's or a, a fair population question. was somehow. You do things um, like take a look at uh, ease of access to getting uh, to getting uh, required forms of identification, percentage of people who have those forms of identification, that sort of thing. I mean, it's not super straightforward, but you can get a sense of it and it needs to be considered because it is a, it is a reasonable factor. Okay. So I would, I just end by my, and the point I've made before, that though it's it's almost impossible to get a handle on it, and when we're talking about the voter ID fraud, uh, the voter impersonation, uh, a difficulty that that you have is if you don't check IDs, you don't really screen for that. Uh, so you're always going to. It's sort of if you have two bars in town and and one cards uh, everyone at the door and the other doesn't, uh, you know your your chances of of getting of drinking underage at the one bar are, are a lot sure. higher than the other. Yeah. And, and like I said, I think that reasonable people can say, you know, and reasonable people should say we need to be concerned with the integrity of elections. Of course we should. Now, all evidence suggests it's not the concern that a lot of people make it out to be nothing close to that. But but if there is a way to you know institute a system that makes it even less of a concern, that doesn't have a, a, a disparate impact on you know minorities or Democratic voters, I'm all for that. You know, and I think right. everyone should be All right. We're on, we're on, we're on, the, we should, we should sign up for the commission. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that'd be great. All right. Let's move on to listener mail. We have, we have a few questions or comments from listeners. Uh, first is Jennifer from Green Bay, Wisconsin, who writes in your recent discussion on healthcare, Jay quoted from the Republican gospel of personal responsibility. Uh, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot get my head around the personal responsibility argument that simultaneously denies my ability to make the most intimate of decisions. What happens inside my own body? I would appreciate your explanation. All right, Jay, explain away. Well, this is, this is a tough one. And, and Jennifer, you might not like the, the answer I, I give, uh, First of all, in terms of uh, personal responsibility, um, the Republican position is you do have uh, that that autonomy. Uh, people have ready access to birth control. Uh, saying that the uh, the government has to fund it, I think, is is a, a separate issue. Um, 
but it's it's not a case of, of where uh, those decisions uh, to to engage in a uh, activity that is likely to result in a child. Uh, that's there's a lot of personal responsibility there, and uh, you know people are gonna. I'm, I know I'm gonna get tons of tons of mail on this, but uh, called me old fashioned, but but it's it's uh, it's the truth. Um, that said, I mean obviously there are there are exceptions, cases of of rape and incest and so forth like that. Uh, but if you're looking at the, the bigger picture of, uh, people having control over, uh, their own health, uh, what they do, what they engage in, um, you, you, you have that. Uh, I think the, the Republican, uh, position on, on abortion is, is once you've got a, uh, uh, whether you call it a fetus or a child, I'll, I'll, I'll use both terms. Um, at that point, the responsibility uh, shifts to protecting that uh, life that that doesn't have the ability to protect itself. Um, so I, I think that's it's that's striking a balance. And I look, I, I get where people come from on the uh, personal autonomy uh, argument because I'm I'm in many ways a libertarian. But uh, if you're asking how does personal responsibility fit into that, I, I guess that's my answer. Okay. You know, one thing I wanted to uh, point out, or at least my, my view on this is, you know, you talked about the Republican position. I think there are, you know, obviously a few Republican positions and certainly uh, sure. uh, there's one that, you know, in some states uh, are trying to pass legislation or have legislation that don't necessarily make exceptions for rape or incest or, or the health of potential, you know, health threats to the mother. And from, from what you're saying you think that those are reasonable exceptions to make, but of course there are some conservatives who would say, you know, particularly some religious conservatives who would say, no, those aren't reasonable exceptions to make. Yeah, no, there are always those those people out there, and again, I, you know, we should be clear as we we try to be. I'm not I'm not any sort of official uh, spokesperson no. for the Republican uh, uh, Party or the conservative movement. I'm just. Uh, I'm just a guy who went to school with Mike and uh, has a microphone. So I, you know, there's there's going to be uh, differences all over the place, and and you can see that in, in different states, uh, and obviously in in places that are uh, more religiously inspired, you you may get uh, more stringent regulations. But I, I think you know the the position that that most of the Republican Party has has adopted is uh, they oppose abortion, but also recognize that here is a constitutional. Uh, here, here's constitutional law as it stands now, um, uh, and uh, most any sort of mainstream proposal I think that you've seen has has included protections for uh, life and health of the mother. Yeah, and, uh, and and rape and incest exceptions. Yeah. Um, all right, moving on to our second question. This the first one was kind of thrown to you. This one, I think uh, I'll try to, I'll try to tackle. It's from Delaney who writes, I've read many comments recently for both an independent commission and for a bipartisan congressional committee. This is about the Trump Russia thing. How do they differ in composition and investigative prosecutorial power? Keep up the great show. I always look forward to listening. Well, Delaney, you, got, you got the easier question. Yeah, I did, didn't I? That works out well for me this week. Uh, well, I, I looked into this a little bit. Uh, here's here's the breakdown, uh, basically. First, you have what's called the select committee. Now, this is members of Congress, and they don't necessarily have to reflect the chamber's partisan balance. Um, and uh, kind of like the select committee that investigated intelligence failures after 9-11. Select committees have subpoena power, but they can't bring criminal charges. 
Then you have independent commissions. Now, they're not necessarily members of Congress, though they can be. The 9-11 Commission's an, an example of this. They also, or like the, the voter voter fraud commission. Yeah, that we just exactly, about. exactly. Um, they also have subpoena power, but again, they can't bring charges. Of the two, a select committee tends to be quicker because the people and staff and so forth are already in place in Congress. There, at least that, that's my view. Then you have a couple of other options. Uh, one's called a special prosecutor or a special counsel. Now, this is someone who's appointed by the attorney general. They can be fired by the president. They have subpoena power and they can bring charges. Um, and so you do this in cases where you think that the attorney general feels that there's conflicts of interest, that this needs to happen outside. Investigation has to happen outside of the Justice Department. And uh, while the president can fire this person, that would be a real big storm of protest because these are supposed to be roughly kind of somewhat independent. Now the most, and I, I just add that the the press, special prosecutor under the special prosecutor statute has really sort of all the resources of Justice Department and yeah. almost virtually unlimited resources, uh, but really none of the accountability other than could be fired by the president, which as you point out, there is a a big political exactly. uh, risk in doing that. Yeah, and then finally, what one option that's no longer on the table to be clear, everyone, is something called an independent counsel. And this was something that had been in place since uh, not too long after Watergate, for obvious reasons, I think. Uh, and then it wasn't renewed in 1999, but it was legislation passed by Congress that uh, an independent counsel would be named by, could be named by the attorney general, would have all those kind of independent powers we talked about for the special prosecutor. But this person could not be fired by the president, and there's no end date to these investigations. And uh, a lot of people started to feel that this was uh, potentially an abuse of power. Uh, Justice Scalia, I believe, wrote a fairly blistering dissent when this came up before the Supreme Court. And so when it was up for renewal in 1999, Congress chose to not renew this statute. So those are basically the options uh, uh, in place there. So select independent commission or a special prosecutor, special counsel, though I would not hold my breath on any of that. I tend to think that what we're going to see is just what we have, the two investigations in the House and the Senate and then the FBI investigation. Yeah, and of course, a, a uh, House and Senate committees uh, do have subpoena power, but like the others, can't necessarily bring bring criminal charges on their own uh except for like a recommendation of contempt for contempt of congress if somebody doesn't show up or or lies and uh you know otherwise there has to be some sort of recommendation that goes to the justice department or some other prosecutor right you know and just really briefly since we're on this i'm sure you've seen this jay uh in in the press this week there have been a lot of uh, liberals at least especially calling for uh, uh, bringing impeachment charges against President Trump for obstruction of justice. Now, that, of course, is not going to happen in a, in a Republican-controlled House. But just briefly, we should talk maybe just briefly about obstruction of justice. Now, that's a really difficult thing to, to prove, or it would be in President Trump's case, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just basically because it kind of goes to the intent did. And the argument on the left is, well, President Trump fired Comey because he was getting too close. And that was his that was his intent, his mindset. And to 
to prove that, you need to kind of get into the president's head and sort of, and that's a really difficult thing to do because even though he's made some statements, they're not, I don't think they're anything close to a sort of a legal standard of proof. Although, of course, the standard of proof in impeachment proceedings is whatever a majority of the House feels is the standard of proof, but there's no way that's going to happen. At right. This point. And, that's, and that's the other sort of funny thing that, to keep in mind when it does come to the president. Uh, really, the the investigatory agency is the House. I yeah. mean, per the Constitution, that's that's really the uh, the only uh, agency that has power to to begin proceedings against the president. And the only proceedings you can really begin against the president are impeachment proceedings. Yeah. And, um, and, and you know, you know, looking into the future, I think there are a lot of I know there are a lot of liberals who are sort of licking their chops at the prospect of maybe getting a majority in the House in 2018 and and getting some real impeachment proceedings going for, you know, for obstruction of justice and so forth. And and just like I said on Facebook this week, I would remind uh, my friends on the left who are eager to do that about how well it worked out for Republicans when they did the same thing to President Clinton, also on obstruction of justice charges in 1998. I think it would not be uh, a tactic that would uh, that would work out very well in the long term. Yep. But I think I think Trump himself said it would be great TV. Oh, God, it sure would. It sure would. All right. <laughs> uh, it's time for what we're reading, where we step back from the crazed pace of the news cycle and talk about the more in-depth sort of thoughtful things that we're reading, listening to or watching in the last week. So, Jay, why don't you start us off this week? What are you reading? Well, I'm going to I'm going to take a little bit of an unusual tack here and that it's not I'm not going to name a sort of article or a piece uh, that was, you know, in the, the press lately. Um, I read a lot of old stuff. And what I've been reading lately is uh, Oswald Spengler's Decline of the West Ooh, uh, parts one and two. A classic. And pardon? A classic. A classic. Uh, and I just want to say that it's this is not for everyone. Um, this is no. this is. This is some some serious heavy lifting, and I'll tell you if I, by saying like, well, I'm reading it now. It's like I've been reading it sort of on and off for the last year or so. Uh, but it's fascinating in, in that talking about perspective broader than than the daily the daily news. Uh, Spengler wrote this uh, just after, sort of during and just after World War One, uh, when we we're going through sort of an epochal change. Uh, and he writes about when he says the decline of the West. Uh, it's it's not this idea of oh boy things are getting bad or or things are uh, going downhill. But he speaks in the the broader terms of the decline of a culture and that all cultures have sort of their birth and their flowering and their their declining. And it's not necessarily bad. It's just sort of the aging process. Uh, and uh, his his prediction was that uh, Western culture was going to more or less run out of gas around uh, the year two thousand. Uh, and he said this this in uh, again 1920 or so, um, but it's 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 a fascinating look at uh, what our culture actually is because again that's something I, I think we don't we don't think about that much. Uh, we think culture means oh it's our language it's our our heritage it's some it's you know ethnic food and, and cultural dancing, um, but but he he takes really the much deeper look at comparing you know Western culture which is essentially sort of the culture of the Renaissance. Uh, to classical Greek Roman culture, uh, to the uh, what he calls the Magian culture of, of the Middle Ages, uh, and and different Asian cultures, in that there's there's something about it that just the way we think about time and space is is fundamentally different. The way we think about numbers and, and measurement is fundamentally different, uh, and how these these ideas sort of go on to inform 
uh, some of our other, uh, other, you know, our art, our, our, our you know, even our, our political philosophy. So I'm, I'm just saying this is, the, if you want to take a step back uh, and try to get some sort of big picture, and again, it's also a little weird in that uh, uh, Spengler writes in a, a, a time before we really had the social science, uh, all the data that we do now. Um, right. Uh, but he's, he's still surprisingly accurate. So anyway, if, if, you're, if you're really up for it, if you're up for a challenge, and again, I'm not saying – this this ain't easy, um, uh, and also it, it, I would say get a good translation because it's one of those things. If Spengler obviously wrote in German, uh, and the, the the translation of of you know thirty German words that are like thirty letters long uh, <laughs> into English, uh, some some translations are better than others. Sure. Uh, so and we, well, that's my big, that's my big highbrow. Uh, uh, yeah, what I'm reading for this week. All right, and we, we will post a link with uh, with the, the best translation that we're aware of, so you can check that out. Um, well, well, my uh, reading this week is also a book, not nearly as highbrow, but still, you know, not 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 fluff. Um, it's The End of Alchemy by Mervyn King. He's the guy who ran the Bank of England from 2003 to 2013. So he was, of course, one of the key players in the reaction to that worldwide financial crisis of 2008 and its aftermath. And in his book, he talks not just about the crisis, but also he gets into the history of money, which is really pretty fascinating. And because uh, once you start thinking about what money is, it really kind of makes your head kind of spin a little bit, um, at least mine. Uh, and he also has some recommendations for reforms of the worldwide financial system. And, you know, I've read a lot on the financial crisis both because just personally I found it fascinating, but also because I was teaching students about it in, in various classes and economic policy and so forth. But most of my reading has been from the U.S. perspective. And so now I'm, I'm sort of trying to get a more global sense of things. Uh, I initially started out by picking up a book by Neil Irwin called The Alchemists. And it got really good reviews, but uh, it was too much kind of behind-the-scenes, personality-based stuff, which which sort of makes sense. Erwin's a, a journalist and a very good one, but there wasn't enough kind of policy wonkery to suit me. And so uh, I found The End of Alchemy, which uh, I think not too long ago just came out in paperback. And so far, I found it to be uh, a really fascinating book. King's a really interesting guy, uh, and I, I would definitely uh, recommend it to everyone. Okay. All right. Well, that about does it for this week's show. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. And our Facebook page where you can message us and we'll repost throughout the week, that's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. You know, we really appreciate our great listeners who have generously supported the show through their donations. And if you'd like to join them, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website, politicsguys.com. And if money's tight or you're already a supporter, we hope you'll consider hitting the share icon on your podcast app to pass along this episode to your friends, your followers, your crew, whatever. Uh, at leaving ratings and reviews of the show on your app and sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets, that also really helps to spread the word. That brings in new listeners, that leads to more donations and advertisers, all that stuff that makes it possible for us to do this show on a regular basis. We'll be back with a new interview this Wednesday and our weekly analysis of the news on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.